Good evening and welcome. I'm Amna Navaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. On the news hour tonight, with renewed resolve, Ukraine marks one year of defending its territory from Russia's brutal invasion. I am grateful to everyone who endured last February, this past year, and who gives Ukraine invincibility. Rebuilding after the devastating earthquake that struck Turkey and Syria is hampered by aftershocks, a lack of resources, and the sheer scale of destruction. And a new lawsuit from Malcolm X's family could provide answers about who was responsible for his assassination nearly six decades ago. Welcome to the News Hour. Today is the first anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. It's the largest war in Europe in 80 years, marked by calamitous destruction and death, but also by bravery and a resilient will of the Ukrainians. The somber day was observed around the world, at the United Nations, across Europe, and most profoundly in Ukraine. In Kyiv, President Volodymyr Zelensky spoke at length to the world media today, at times welling up with tears for his family and his country. With the support of the Pulitzer Center, Nick Schifrin reports again tonight from Ukraine. Slava Ukraini! In the ancient heart of a city that has endured one year of war, they sang the national anthem. Its title, Ukraine Has Not Yet Perished, a dark but determined call to stay resilient on a solemn anniversary. President Volodymyr Zelensky, his leadership forged in the fire of war, honored the men and women who have saved the country. I am grateful to everyone who endured last February, this past year, and who gives Ukraine invincibility. There was a moan of silence for lives lost. Zelensky honored grieving widows, and he awarded Ukrainian servicemen with the highest of awards, Hero of Ukraine. And from a Kyiv basement, Zelensky gave a two-and-a-half-hour press conference and recalled what for him was the war's worst moment, the day he visited the site of some of the war's worst atrocities. I think Bucha, what I saw, the moment we deoccupied Bucha, it was horrible. What we've seen, the devil is not somewhere below us, he's among us. Two days after China's top diplomat visited the Kremlin, today Beijing released a peace plan that called for respect for territorial integrity but didn't detail what that meant. Zelensky said today he would oppose the plan if it didn't call for a Russian withdrawal. As far as I know, China has historically respected territorial integrity, and so it should do everything so that the Russian Federation leaves our territory, as it's in this that the gravity of sovereignty and territorial integrity lies. No one wants peace more than the Ukrainian people. At the UN Security Council, Secretary of State Antony Blinken advocated for what the U.S. and Ukraine call a just and durable peace. For peace to be durable, it must ensure that Russia can't simply rest, rearm, and relaunch the war in a few months or a few years. Today, the U.S. and other leaders of the seven largest industrial nations announced new sanctions and export controls on Russia. The U.S. also unveiled an additional $2 billion worth of military aid, including more ammunition for long-range rockets. And on this anniversary, much of the Western world showed solidarity, from Amsterdam to Sydney, and even in Moscow, memorials on monuments devoted to Ukrainian writers. But even those flower bearers were quickly detained. It is still illegal in Russia to call the war a war. And a year is a long time to be at war, even for hardened warriors. My children are the most important people for me. I do not see them often. My parents, I do not see them at all. I am very proud of my wife. That was Zelensky at his most vulnerable, but he was also today at his most determined. He ruled out any idea of negotiating with Vladimir Putin and said that the only vision for the end of this war that he could see is Russia's total withdrawal. Amna, Jeff? 
Nick Schifrin with another tremendous piece of reporting there. Nick, we just heard a little bit of what President Zelensky had to say today. That was a two-hour press conference. As you know, you were there. What else stood out to you from his remarks? Zelensky's spokesman called on more than 40 reporters across five continents. There was clearly a desire from his team to get into the markets uh, across from Latin America all the way to East Asia. Uh, on the U.S., he was asked about Americans who are saying to pollsters that they believe the administration is spending too much money to support Ukraine. And he warned that if the U.S. did not support Ukraine enough to win over Russia, that Russia would eventually launch a war against NATO and American soldiers would have to go and fight and die like Ukrainian soldiers would fight and die uh, or are fighting and dying right now. Uh, and on China, beyond the peace plan, he said that Beijing must not send weapons to Russia. He said that that was his, quote, number one priority. I'm doing everything I can to ensure that doesn't happen. That, of course, is something that the U.S. is also warning Beijing is considering. So, Nick, you have been in Ukraine for the past two weeks. This is your fourth reporting trip to that country since Russia launched its full-scale invasion last year. You've interviewed Ukrainian troops. You've spoken to everyday Ukrainians. Is there a message that the people you've spoken with want to convey to Americans? The message is two words, weapons and resilience. Uh, Ukraine needs more weapons in order to launch a counteroffensive in the coming weeks and months. And that's not only the armored vehicles that the U.S. is sending to try and launch that counteroffensive. It's also basic ammunition. I visited multiple units on the front, Jeff, that have said that they are short on ammunition. Uh, and also resilience. You hear that from Zelensky to the soldier on the front to the man who has just lost his home uh, in eastern Ukraine to a Russian rocket. They are resilient in spite of, but because of all of the horrors, all of the crimes, what the U.S. calls crimes against humanity that I've been reporting on committed by Russian forces who are waging total war. The person who pushed the button that launched the missile that struck 13 Marit Street, Kramatorsk, almost certainly did not know of the apartments that once stood here, the people and families who once lived here, and the lives that were stolen here. But 60-year-old Valentina knows. She might have lived on the fourth floor, but all that she owns fell here in the lobby. She salvages what she can from the Russian strike on February 1st that Ukraine and the U.S. called indiscriminate. She walked up to her apartment despite the frequent air raid siren. She's lived here longer than Ukraine has been independent. She was in her apartment when the missile struck. She's lucky to be alive. Today, she uses it for storage. This is what remains of her possessions. The wall that used to have a window into the bathroom is now a window onto the ground below. That's her bathtub and the aqua tiles installed by her and her son. I was asleep, and I was lucky that I was on the other side of the apartment. Had I been sleeping on this side, you see for yourself. So that's your son. She shows me videos of her son. In 2014, he went to fight following Russia's initial invasion. He never came back. On March 23rd, he would have been 44. My life has been lived. For 60 years, I was saving, creating this home. And now it's all gone. There was a grocery store here, and they got me some groceries. Just strangers, total strangers. This was the first year they've opened this store. They called me and asked, do you need anything? I said, I've never asked anyone for anything my whole life. I'm very ashamed, but I don't have anything. And they got me groceries. They said, this is for you, from our family. That's it. Everybody left. I'm here all alone. Artem Shalata is a Donetsk region war crimes prosecutor who's investigating the strike that he calls a violation of the rules of war. During this attack, a married couple died. A 61-year-old woman and her 31-year-old daughter died, and 17 people were wounded. He and his fellow prosecutors visit the aftermath of many strikes and try to find the Russian missile that can sometimes be linked with specific units. And they document graves of the Ukrainians whom Russians have killed with overwhelming regularity. 
What is the scale of Russian crimes in Donetsk? We are overseeing investigations of more than 20,000 criminal cases in connection with violations of the rules of war. One of the most notorious occurred here, the Kramatorsk train station, where the horror of what happened hangs heavy for even soldiers, and the memorial marks the most innocent victims. Last April 8th, hundreds of Ukrainians from the east arrived on the platform and inside the station to try and flee the war. Suddenly, they flinched. Human Rights Watch investigated the attack and created this animation. At that moment, a mile and a half above the station, a Tochko-U cluster bomb, 20 feet long, with 50 bomblets inside, exploded and released its deadly submunitions, each with explosives and metal rings. When they land, they burst into thousands of fragments and create terror. At least 58 people died, more than 100 injured, one of the war's deadliest moments. Left behind, the suitcases that would never be used again. The prized possession that would never be held again. Apparently, the Russians considered the attack tit for tat. The missile that landed here was spray-painted payback for our children. I mean, absolutely horrific what they did. This was a known evacuation point. We counted over 500 people at this train station at the moment of the attack. Ida Sawyer directs the Crisis and Conflict Division at Human Rights Watch. This attack at the train station, clearly a violation of the laws of war and an apparent war crime. These are people desperately fleeing war. We've seen extensive war crimes, crimes against humanity being committed over the past year, and it is, it's just one thing after another. In so many ways, Russia has taken a page from its own playbook and targeted Ukraine's most vulnerable. This used to be a psychiatric institution hit by four Russian rockets, one of at least eight hospitals in this city alone struck by Russia, part of what independent researchers call a nationwide campaign against Ukrainian medical facilities. Physicians for Human Rights mapped every attack on a medical facility between February 24th and December 31st. They counted 707. If you think this is new, you haven't been paying attention. Russia has used the same tactics in Syria for eight years. But now Russia's committing a new crime. These children might look happy for Russian propaganda cameras, but each is Ukrainian, stolen from their homeland and forcibly made Russian. This is the reality. Russians besieged Mariupol and forced its children into Russia, including those of Yevgeny Mozhevoy. I put the children on the bus, hugged and kissed them. One man said he would be returned in seven years. People said five or seven years. They asked me again, do you want to join a foster family or an orphanage? They told their story in a Vanity Fair documentary for The Reckoning Project. Natalia Humanyuk is the group's founding member. From some of the testimonies and also, you know, analytical reports and what we hear from, from, from the people, there is an attempt to indoctrinate those kids with a different uh, policies uh, with different ideas and actually, you know, creating kind of a hatred and denial of the Ukrainian state. Mezhevoy managed to travel to Moscow and escape with his children to Latvia. The U.S. says Moscow's actions are taken at all levels of the Russian government, including the top. Last week, Russian President Vladimir Putin met the Presidential Commissioner for Children's Rights in Russia, who said she, quote, adopted her own Ukrainian child. I think Russia, in particularly in previous wars, in Syria, in Chechnya, they were acting uh, with such an impunity, thinking that nobody would care. In Ukraine, they made a mistake. We do care, we record, we document. There is the will of the people, of the country, to do something, and that gives a hope that that the justice can prevail. Ukraine wants to create an independent tribunal to pursue Russia's leadership. But the U.S. has so far refused to support that and instead prioritizes the International Criminal Court. Accountability there will take years Go. while the Russian missiles keep falling. This strike blew open a dozen homes and rained debris on the playground, the same playground where 61-year-old Sergei Sedeliev's children used to play. 
He stares at his now destroyed home, where he lived with his parents and his family for the last 42 years. There is so much torment here, but it's mixed with a tenacious will. We lost all of our savings. This is my whole life, and now everything is gone. Everything is gone. I'm an older man, but we will make it through. Life does not stop here. We will win for sure. I have no doubt whatsoever. After all the Russian crimes, most Ukrainians say the only justice would be victory. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Nick Schifrin in Kramatorsk, Ukraine. In the day's other headlines, parts of California were under blizzard and flood warnings today as a vicious storm intensified across the western U.S. Forecasters warned that up to five feet of snow could fall on the mountains near Los Angeles. The weather caused dangerous whiteout conditions for drivers. In Portland, Oregon, people were trapped on icy roads for hours. 12, 13, 14 hours, the road opened up and I got up to here and I had then was a big truck over here. You couldn't get up the hill, so I, I I parked it here and I got I got to wait for a tow truck. That's the safest thing, you know. I've been up all night long. Farther east, about 650,000 people are still without power in Michigan after one of the worst ice storms there in decades. The heavy snow and freezing rain are expected to linger from coast to coast into the weekend. In Brazil, the death toll from heavy rain that has devastated coastal areas has risen to 54 people. Cleanup efforts are underway after massive downpours caused landslides and flooding in the southeastern state of Sao Paulo last weekend. Residents are reeling from the loss. All my houses were brought down. The broken tiles and shingles fell on us, leaving us injured. I called out to my mother, hoping she would answer, but all I heard were three cries and nothing else. At that moment, I knew she was taken away from us forever. Rescuers are searching for dozens of people who are still missing before more rain moves in this weekend. Back in this country, the Federal Reserve's preferred measure of inflation rose more than expected last month, triggering a Wall Street sell-off as investors weighed the prospect of interest rates staying higher for longer. The Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 337 points to close at 32,817. The Nasdaq fell 195 points, and the S&P 500 shed 42. First Lady Jill Biden is giving the strongest signal yet that President Joe Biden will run for re-election. The president has long said that it's his intention to run again, but has not yet made it official. During an interview with the Associated Press during a trip to Kenya, the first lady said the president is gearing up for a race. He says he's not done. He's not finished what he started. And that's what's important. And I think, uh, look at all that Joe has has done. Is all that's left at this point is just to figure out a time and place for the announcement? Pretty much. Meantime, Vice President Kamala Harris met today with reproductive rights advocates and defended access to abortion pills. She spoke out as a Texas lawsuit seeks to ban sales of the FDA-approved abortion pill Mifepristone nationwide over concerns its safety review was flawed. The vice president said it's the latest effort to limit women's rights since Roe v. Wade was overturned last year. We will continue to fight for the rights of the American people to make decisions about their own bodies, free from government interference and free from partisan political obstructionist attacks. This is not just an attack on women's fundamental freedoms. Um, it is an attack on the very foundation of our public health system. The meeting happened as 12 Democratic-led states sued the federal government today to expand access to Mifepristone, challenging restrictions on its distribution. And still to come on the NewsHour, why House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is drawing criticism for giving Fox exclusive footage of the January 6th attack. David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart weigh in on the week's political headlines. And the Ukrainian ballet uses dance to help their countries fight against Russia.
This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. In the nearly three weeks since deadly quakes hit southern Turkey and northern Syria, the focus has shifted from rescue to rehabilitation. The task ahead is not only to reconstruct homes, but also to rebuild lives, especially for the youngest victims. Special correspondent Jane Ferguson reports. In the tent city of Gaziantep, life after the earthquakes is all but an endless struggle. Hatice Demir is battling cancer, and now, homelessness, learning to live with the bare minimum. I used to wake up in a warm room, but now I'm chasing gas stations, running around looking for a sink to wash up. Our opportunities are gone. Our self-confidence is gone. Like her, a million Turks are now without a home. Hundreds here stood in line in the cold for a shower. The public swimming pool has been turned into a sanitation center. Efforts to find the living under the rubble have ended. Now, a focus on the next stage, rebuilding. Yasir Behrakci is picking up the pieces of his life. We cannot bring back the dead, but because we survived, we are trying to get out whatever is left. We have to live. We have no other choice. Luckily, that mind shift and work is getting started. We're in Adi Oman, which, as you know, is 60-70% destroyed. They are already clearing large plots of land um, to put containers on. Tom Smith is an American Air Force veteran volunteering in Turkey with Washington, D.C.-based charity Project Hope. The challenge is there. You know, when you talk about just rebuilding, it's not just, hey, here's the house that we're going to rebuild. It is going to be what's that intermediate step, which is basic housing units. Smith and his team have been assessing the needs of those displaced by the earthquake. The need for sanitation. You know, everyone, everyone loves that hot shower, the ability to wash their hands, go to a safe latrine and safe drinking water. It is still cold here. It's 20 degrees at night, you know, 40 degrees uh, during the day, and people are living in tents. And yet, attempts to move on have been disrupted again by the heaving earth. <laughs> on Monday, another large quake in Antakya terrified, already traumatized, displaced families. This is what we call complex trauma because, okay, the the incident happened at the first time, but now they, it's recurring. We are currently experiencing aftershocks and the people are continuously uh, going through the trauma again and again. Rawan Hamade is also with Project Hope and provides psychological support to earthquake victims and rescue staff. She says the last few weeks have been especially tough on the youngest here. We hear stories about children going mute after the uh, the earthquake and not being able to talk or to express themselves in any way. We're seeing like bedwetting issues, of course, disturbances in sleep and eating patterns. Uh, we are seeing uh, children who are extremely attached to their mother. They wouldn't leave their side or extreme isolation from others. Volunteers are trying to bring joy back to their lives, an effort to let children be children. Infants across the border in northwest Syria are also in desperate need. This clinic in Quakehead Jandiras is overrun with patients, but running out of medicines. A UN delegation finally arrived here, over two weeks since the earthquakes. I'm shocked by the scale of disaster. I've never seen anything like it. People need food, they need shelter, they need fresh water, they need sanitation, so the needs are huge. A day after the first wave of quakes, this family survived against all odds. Mustafa El Sayed, his wife and three children, were some of the few to make it out alive from Harem City, where 800 people died. At that time, the moment of his little daughter Elaf's rescue was a rare glimmer of hope in a battered Syria. The News Hour caught up with them two weeks later. I love I'm five right now, right? Five devils fell on top of us. We were calling out, civil defense, please help us, we're gonna die. There was a man who heard us. They said they're going to rescue us in the morning. I was like, whoa. I was sleeping, 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 and then I knew they were coming to take us out. 
We were sleeping, and there was a small earthquake, and then there was another one, and the rocks fell on top of us. There was dirt in my ear. And then the civil defense came, and they rescued us, and they took us to the hospital, and then they took us to Grandpa's house. Elaf and thousands of Syrian and Turkish kids like her have escaped with their lives. The quality of those lives now depends on an unprecedented, massive operation to repair and rebuild. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Jane Ferguson. This week marked the anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X. Since that day, 58 years ago, there have been many difficult and painful questions about who may have been involved in his murder and what led to it. This week, Malcolm X's family took new action, announcing their intent to sue several federal and local government agencies for allegedly concealing evidence about what happened. We want justice served for our father. Malcolm X's daughter, Ilyasa Shabazz, still searching for answers decades after his assassination. At a press conference this week, Shabazz, surrounded by family and civil rights attorney Ben Crump, announced plans to file a $100 million wrongful death lawsuit against the NYPD, the CIA, FBI, and other government agencies. For years, our family has fought for the truth to come to light concerning his murder, and we'd like our father to receive the justice that he deserves. They allege a conspiracy in connection with Malcolm X's murder and a subsequent cover-up of evidence. The truth about the circumstances leading to the death of our father is important, not only to his family, but to many followers, many admirers, many who look to him for guidance, for love, on February 21, 1965, Malcolm X was killed in a hail of bullets just as he was about to give a speech in the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem as his pregnant wife and children ducked for safety. He was 39 years old. Three men were arrested and convicted of the crime. In November 2021, after decades of doubt surrounding the case and following the release of the Netflix documentary Who Killed Malcolm X, the Manhattan District Attorney reopened the case. Two men who were convicted of murdering Malcolm X in 1966 were exonerated after serving decades in prison. And the district attorney admitted that the FBI and NYPD at the time withheld evidence. The New York Police Department, the FBI, the district attorney of New York had factual evidence, exculpatory evidence that they fraudulently concealed from the men who were wrongfully convicted for the assassination of Malcolm X. And they also fraudulently concealed that information, most importantly, from the family of Malcolm X. The FBI, CIA, and NYPD did not respond to the NewsHour's requests for comments. The lawsuit could help put to rest decades of controversy and conspiracy theories that have swirled in the more than 50 years since his assassination. Leading Malcolm X historian Abdurrahman Muhammad sees the suit as the culmination of years of work investigating the assassination. I'm extremely gratified and really had no way of knowing uh, going into this that it would culminate in such a spectacular victory. I think it's unprecedented in U.S. history that that's ever happened, and I'm extremely grateful and gratified to have lived long enough to see this day. As for Malcolm X's family, they say they want their father to receive the justice he deserves. Some Republicans are once again relitigating what happened at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy sharing key video footage of the Capitol attack with a star Fox personality. Lisa Desjardins brings us up to speed about how it happened and what Tucker Carlson hopes to find in the footage. 
and why are they still hiding thousands of hours of surveillance footage from within the Capitol? For months, he asked for access. You can't know whether the Capitol's surveillance cameras pan, tilt, or zoom. And now Tucker Carlson has it. This week, Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy granted the Fox News host access to 44,000 hours of security footage from Capitol grounds on January 6th. Carlson controls a primetime hour on the most watched cable network. On the basis of a wholly created myth about what happened that day. And has been a megaphone for baseless conspiracy theories that deflect blame from former President Trump, including the idea that rioters on January 6th were actually victims of a government false flag plot. He sees surveillance footage as possible evidence. Our producers, some of our smartest producers, have been there uh, looking at this stuff and trying to figure out what it means and how it contradicts or not the story that we've been told for more than two years. We think already that in some ways it does contradict that story. Carlson's words over the last two years reveal the narrative he wants. How many law enforcement agents actively helped January 6th protesters enter the building that day? Some of them definitely did. We know that for a fact. Ray Epps was standing in exactly the same place that a lot of people who went to jail were standing. But he wasn't charged. His name was taken off the FBI's most wanted list. Why is that? But evidence shows that Ray Epps, an Arizona man who was at the Capitol, was telling protesters to calm down. And Carlson's allegation that Epps was working for the FBI has been debunked. USA! USA! Overall, there's no evidence of undercover law enforcement instigating the rioters. Yeah, I, I think the public should see what has happened on day eight. In granting Fox News access, McCarthy keeps a promise to hardline members in his conference from negotiations boosted by Carlson himself. If Kevin McCarthy wants to be the speaker, he is going to have to do things he would never do otherwise. McCarthy told The New York Times this week that the tapes belong to the public and he wants sunshine on them. But Carlson is not a neutral arbiter. He has condemned violence, but also defended the motivations behind it. How, for example, did senile hermit Joe Biden get 15 million more votes than his former boss, rock star crowd surfer Barack Obama? Despite raising conspiracies, recent court filings show Carlson and other top Fox News stars didn't believe some of the pro-Trump claims. In text messages, Carlson wrote about a one-time Trump advisor. Sidney Powell is lying, by the way. I caught her. It's insane. Carlson's not the first to access these tapes. They've already been reviewed by the House Select Committee investigating January 6th, last Congress. Republicans accused the group of cherry-picking those clips, and Fox did not air much of its hearings. They are lying, and we are not going to help them do it. Back at the Capitol, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer issued a scathing statement accusing McCarthy of exposing the Capitol complex to one of the worst security risks since 9-11. McCarthy says he intends to grant others access to the video in the future, but until then, it remains an exclusive deal between the leading Republican in Congress and the party's primetime star. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Lisa Desjardins. For insights into the larger implications of Tucker Carlson's access to that January 6th footage and what the year of war in Ukraine can tell us about the future direction of that conflict and the world, we turn now to the analysis of Brooks and Capehart. That is New York Times columnist David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart, associate editor for The Washington Post. Good to see you both. Hey, I'm not Let's pick up where Lisa left off there, Jonathan. This uh, idea, Speaker McCarthy has handed over these thousands of hours of security footage to Tucker Carlson. And there are those who argue, just let everyone see everything and make up their own minds about it. Is there validity to that? Well, sure, simply because the speaker has given all of this footage to Tucker Carlson. If you're going to give it to him, you should give it to MSNBC, CNN, give it to everyone, give it to PBS, give it to everyone so that they can look at it. But you know what? I don't need to see 44,000 hours worth of footage. I watched our government being attacked by supporters of the former president live on television in real time over several hours. I don't know what Tucker Carlson is going to do with this with the footage and how he's going to present it on his show, but whatever it is and however he does it and whenever he does it will be a disservice to his viewers and it'll be a disservice to this country. 
David, I, we don't know what he's going to do with it. I am baffled, though, by this idea that it seemed like for a long time Republicans wanted to get as far away from January 6th as they could. This feels like they're resurrecting, re resurrecting it now. Yeah, Why well, talk about it more? I noticed Marjorie Taylor Greene was uh, ecstatic over this. So this is clearly what they wanted and what they wanted in exchange for voting for uh, Kevin McCarthy. I guess their argument is that the people on the committee were not exactly friends to Donald Trump. Uh, and so somebody who's more friendly to Donald Trump should have a whack at it. And so the, you want to pick the Edward R. Murrow Varday, Tucker Carlson. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, Sarcasm I think... Sarcasm duly noted, I just want to say. I'll laugh. <laughs> I think in general, opening it up, as long as they protect the procedures of this, the capital security, and as long as you don't release those, opening up widely, giving anything, any public official giving everything to a one news organization, that's just bizarre and against the rules of what we do. If you give it to one news organization, it should be a dump <laughs> off the record. But, but just doing it out in front of the day, it's just, it's not done. You give it to the public. Are you worried about how they'll use it? Um, yeah, I worry about everything Tucker <laughs> touches uh, these days. I used to work for him a long time. Um, but, uh, uh, but, you know, I think the conspiracy theories are out there. There may be more conspiracy theories. It's hard to imagine them building another mountain of nonsense on top of the existing mountain of nonsense that comes out. We'll be waiting and watching and I'm sure talking about it some more. That's one of the issues dividing a lot of Americans right now. We also asked uh, in our latest PBS NewsHour, Marist NPR poll, a number of other issues that Americans have varying opinions on. We asked both of you what stood out to you from that poll and you, you actually pointed to the same question that I want to highlight here, which is on the question of U.S. support for Ukraine. When you take a look at those numbers, we asked people what they thought about the level of support. About 42 percent of people said we're providing the right amount of support. But this number, the third of people who said we're providing too much support, did stick out to me. And if you dig down deeper into that, there is a partisan divide as well. That's Republicans in that group overwhelmingly feel that there is too much support from the U.S. going to Ukraine. Why, why did that stand out to you, Jonathan? Well, it stood out to me because of what we've been hearing from the Republican House majority, Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and others talking. And even um, before he became Speaker, Kevin McCarthy talking about, well, maybe we're giving too much support. We're sending too much money to Ukraine. So the fact that 47% of Republicans say that it's too much and 54% of Trump voters say that it's too much, to my mind, says that after the president releases his budget on March 9th or when the president goes back to Congress for more funding, that we will then start to see this friction that we've only been talking about in theory play out um, in, in public. And I think from the administration's perspective, that kind of daylight is not helpful uh, because w what the president has been banking on is a unified front, right. both within the American government for Ukraine, but then among the alliance. And if that phrase within the United States then the fear is that that fraying could also um, impact the alliance as well. What did those numbers say to you? Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating on the Republican side. Uh, our, uh, there was a Pew poll that had similar numbers to ours, which had 40% of Republicans saying we're giving too much, and 41% said we're giving the right amount or should give more. And you're beginning to see this play out in the Republican field. And so you've got, uh, you've got well, Donald Trump, you've got President Tucker Carlson, <laughs> and other major Republican figures uh, saying too much, too much, too much. Yeah. And then you've got, meanwhile, Tom Cotton, uh, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, all saying not enough, not enough, not enough. And so radically different policy agendas. And this week, uh, Ron DeSantis went on Fox and Friends, and he sort of danced between the two, sort of edging a little toward it. But what you're seeing is a, is a party bitterly divided over something of real substance. And I think the, the primaries will, will just reveal that over and over again. It's striking, too, as we mark one year since the Russian invasion of Ukraine this week, a war we should remind people many thought would not last but a matter of days. We actually went back and saw what both of you had to say oh. a year ago. Here's just a snippet of what you were saying a year ago when it came to the war in Ukraine. We were blessed to live for many years, probably all of our lives so far, in this era of rules. Uh, we may be ending that era and re-entering an era of great power rivalries, such as we saw in the 17th century, in the 18th century, in the 16th century, in the 15th century. We are seeing right there the battle between democracy and autocracy. And having democracy win is not assured, especially because democracy here in the United States um, is the weakest it's been uh, in memory.
first of all, say it's nice to have you both here in person <laughs> rather than your home studios. But Jonathan, do you still see it the same way? Does democracy stand a better chance today than it did a year ago? Um, yes. Arguably, yes, because at that moment, we weren't quite sure whether Ukraine, whether President Zelensky, who no one had any kind of expectation uh, of him or of the country. We were disabused of that within, within days. And the fact that we are here entering year two is extraordinary. It says a lot about President Zelensky. It says a lot about the Ukrainian, it says more about the Ukrainian people, their willingness to fight for their, for their country, men and women, anyone. Remember those, those early pictures of people learning how to shoot guns because they were going to defend themselves against the Russians. Um, but that fight between democracy and autocracy is still there. And, you know, we could be facing a situation where that battle is, will become more fraught as Russia gets more desperate. David, what about you? Are we deeper into this new era, as you described it? Yeah, we are. I mean, it's hard to overestimate how big a deal this war has been. When you think about the events of the last year, it's been magn it's been earth-shaking, literally earth-shaking. And first, the humanitarian crisis has just been overwhelming. But second, the Western alliance has been reformed. Mm -hmm. American influence in the world has expanded. Military strategy has been utterly changed by the war. Uh, there's been a global decoupling of our economies. Energy flows have radically changed. Russia and China have come together. And these are all sort of big events that have all been cut, set off by this war. And I think basically the contradictions have become focused. Uh, we in the West, uh, including Japan and other countries, but the democracy-loving countries, the countries who want to maintain a liberal world over, have been strengthened and hardened by the people of Ukraine. But even this week, the Russians and the Chinese are getting closer together. And so it really looks like a, a global power struggle between people who want to respect human dignity uh, and people who not so much. Could China's entry into this war, as we've seen U.S. officials warning against the provision of lethal aid, could that change the direction of the war? For sure. One thinks of Korea, the Korean War. And so that was a war started by a Russian dictator. Uh, they had some success, but they thought the U.S. would never get involved. They thought it would be an easy victory. It turned out to be. The U.S. got involved. They pushed them back. They got the Chinese involved. The Chinese altered the course of the war for a little while. Uh, and then we pushed them back. Uh, and it was a deadlock. And we signed an armistice that people thought was temporary. Mm -hmm. Turned out to be not temporary. And so as people look to the future of Ukraine and the possibility of a negotiated settlement, I think a lot of will determine what happens this spring. And then we can start to think about how can we get through a negotiated peace. But right now we're not there, and I'm sure Putin's hoping China will fundamentally alter the logic of the war. You know, Jonathan, Americans have felt the effect of the war to some degree, right? Certainly the reshaping of the global energy market, the knock-on effects of all of that, um, and bearing witness through the reporting, like our colleague Nick right. Schifrin has been doing out there. But it's not necessarily the same, certainly for Ukrainians and even for Europeans who are feeling it more immediately. Do you think the longer this goes on, we do see a decline in support? And what does that mean for the future of the war? Yeah, unfortunately because of our of our oceans and most of the American people have no real skin in the game it's easy for us to go from the euphoria of cheering on you know an, an underdog to like, oh, this has been going on a while I'm gonna go on and think about other things but we in this business we cannot we cannot be a part of that process we have to keep telling the stories we have to keep doing the reporting we have to keep explaining why this is important. This just isn't because Russia invaded Ukraine. There are bigger issues here that David, that David pointed out. And if, if China does provide lethal aid to Russia, how does the Biden administration hold back on those F-16s that President Zelensky has been asking for? If this truly is a battle between democracy and autocracy, at some point, democracy will have to, will have to uh, uh, rear up on its hind legs and smack down autocracy. And we could see that after we see what happens with the spring offensive. Do you see this stretching another year, David? For sure. <laughs> yeah. But I see us um, holding uh, still and hold, hold the West holding firm. I was in Dublin and I'm waiting to get my passport checked. The, there's a loud Irish <laughs> lady running the line mm -hmm. and she says, clear away, clear away. And she's got this Ukrainian family. At the end of the line, she said, these people are going first. They're going first. These are the most important people in the world right now. And we all bow and shake hands. And, and so that Irish lady her, on, her, on her own will help the Western Alliance stay uh, intact. <laughs>
I think we can all buy into that idea. <laughs> David Brooks, Jonathan Capehart, thank you so much. Thanks, honey. Thank you. During the past 12 months of war, Ukrainians have demonstrated their courage and resilience in countless ways. One group of artists is responding the best way they know how, through dance, bringing their work and their stories to world stages. Jeffrey Brown profiles the United Ukrainian Ballet for our arts and culture series, Canvas. Giselle, one of the most beloved ballets in the classical repertoire. Gorgeous music and movement, a story of romance and loss. But this production, performed recently at Washington, D.C.'s Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, had its own added story. One dancers like Oleksiy Knaskov brought to the stage. All dancers, or maybe all of Ukrainians, have this floating on the waves all the time with emotions, with everything. We don't know how it will end. We don't know we'll have our homes when we'll come back. Before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Konoskov, 30, was a principal dancer with the Kharkiv National Opera and Ballet in Ukraine's second largest city. The war put a stop to his career as to so much else. More important, it has threatened his homeland and the lives of his loved ones, most of whom remain in Donetsk, where he grew up. Now he's one of more than 60 professional dancers from theaters throughout Ukraine, living in exile in The Hague in the Netherlands, joined as the United Ukrainian Ballet. My soul is like broken. Several of them danced amid the rubble at home to highlight the mission of the new group. The only thing that could save me uh, it's dancing. Konoskov and the other male dancers were given special permission by the government to leave Ukraine to take part in this project, in acknowledgement of their importance as cultural ambassadors. People see us like bones and uh, like blood. Uh, like real humans. flesh yes, and blood yes, human flesh beings. And, yes, yes. Yeah. Not on screen, some when they watch news, but when you see these real people on the stage, you can maybe understand them, uh, feel their emotions, and in some way uh, unite it with them, some way connect with them. 20-year-old Vladislava Ignatenko grew up in Kharkiv, where her family remains. She had just begun her dancing career in Odessa when the war broke out. We're really trying to help each other, and we understand each other more than everyone else at this time. So I think it's really powerful community for us to share our like, emotions and to, to help each other to work on the same project. Sharing emotions, everybody has difficult, yes. painful emotions now. That's why. Mm -hmm. But also it's really nice when people, after performance, think about how to help our country or maybe check on something what happened there much more to donate, to, to help, to ask Ukrainian people how it is. It, it's really nice to communicate like this. When we had this idea, we never thought it would be this. <laughs> it would never become this big. The United Ukrainian Ballet was begun last year by Dutch ballerina Ikhoni de Jong, who serves as the company's artistic director. This is my room. She I helped find lodging and studio space in The Hague and gradually brought more dancers into the fold. This is unlike anything she or the dancers have ever done. For one thing, ballet requires enormous discipline and focus. But these dancers necessarily have their minds on their families and friends back home. I try to have conversations with them where I said to them, maybe just 10 minutes or just 15 minutes during class, just you know, focus on you, focus on what you're doing with your body, and give yourself a little break. It's, of course, a very difficult question to ask, but after a few months, I could feel that they were getting a little bit more comfortable and a little bit more at ease with just dancing. There's a psychology to this project that you probably have never experienced yourself. No, no, and I don't think there's a rule book for it. If you have any sense of fairness of what's right, what's wrong, I think that's only choice. 
Uh, Ukraine is fighting for freedom and democracy. The biggest name involved with the United Ukrainian Ballet is Alexei Ratmansky, a one-time director of Moscow's famed Bolshoi Ballet, today one of the world's most renowned choreographers. The company is performing his version of Giselle, which restores some of the movement and other features of the original 19th century French ballet. And he brings his own unusually personal story to this project. His mother is Russian, his father Ukrainian. He was born in Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, Russia, but raised in Kyiv. On the day Russia attacked Ukraine, he was actually in Moscow working with the Bolshoi, and his world changed too. When my wife called me from New York saying Kyiv is bombed, it was 5 a.m., I didn't have any choice. I just left right away, I grabbed my team, and uh, I felt that this door is shut for me because I can't split. I can't sit on two chairs. I have to make a decision. And the decision is the Ukrainian identity and the country must be supported. Right, right. That support is now evident in his work with the United Ukrainian Ballet, also in his public criticism of prominent Russian artists for not speaking out. He understands why some Russians, fearing for their families, might stay silent. But, he says... You can't pretend that nothing is going on. You can't say life continues, we're happy, we, uh, we, 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 are, we are dancing. You, you know, there is something that just uh, doesn't work that way. You're selling yourself to, to, the wrong, <laughs> to the wrong person. You're on the wrong side. For the Ukrainian dancers, of course, there is also no question of the right and wrong side. And for them, being able to dance is part of their identity, stripped away by the war. In some way, when I came on stage in Netherlands first time, for, it was almost half year past after the beginning of the war. It was in August. Uh, I felt that uh, my life came back to me, that I begin to live again. Are you worried that the rest of the world is, isn't paying as much attention anymore? Sometimes it's doubts about it, but uh, then you came to uh, another country and you see people interested in, in news about Ukraine. So our mission to, to make it mind. Yeah, more yes. people to, to keep it in mind. The group ends each performance by singing the Ukrainian national anthem. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Jeffrey Brown at Washington, D.C.'s Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. And you can watch more of our stories on the war in Ukraine over the past year on our YouTube page. Tune into Washington Week tonight for more analysis of the war in Ukraine and President Biden's recent trip to Kyiv. And watch PBS News Weekend to hear the story of Ed Dwight, the Air Force pilot who helped pave the way for NASA's black astronauts. In the meantime, that is the news hour. I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. Thanks for joining us and have a great weekend.